Recording. Yes. Are they going to make weird noises because they're near each other? Let's do that. No fear, right. I'll try and get all my paper shuffling out of the way. This is How Did I Get Here from One's Creative Job. Today I'm speaking to Scarlett Montanaro. Have I pronounced that correctly? <laughs> yeah. I should have checked that with you before we started recording. Um, <laughs> By day, Scarlett is a creative a creative agency, 18 feet and rising, but by night she is co-founder and creative director of Crack and Cider, a social enterprise that is completely changing the way that we give to the homeless. Scarlett blogs for the Huffington Post and has spoken at many industry events such as Glug, Creative Social, She Says and TEDx. I'm only about halfway through Scarlett's intro, by the way, which is testament to everything she is doing and has done so I'll get through the second half now. As I'm sinking further and further into my seat. (laughs) She has run social impact workshops at Canline Festival and lectured on the subject at University of the Arts London and here's just a sprinkle of Scarlett's accolades. Um, Creativity's female future named among the top 30 women in the industry set for the top by campaign magazine and creative equals. Campaign digital maverick named among the top seven women shaking up digital marketing by campaign magazine. Beamer 100 named as one of the 100 people driving UK digital and there are many more to be found on her website, Massive Plug, which you can find, although I'm plugging it. Scarlett didn't even ask me to plug this and I'm plugging it. I will plug anything, (laughs) even if you don't ask me to. You can find on her website at scarlettmontanaro, all one word, dot com. There is no doubt Scarlett has made a lot more than just a living from creativity. So Scarlett, for everyone listening that wants a creative job, I'm here to ask... How did you get here? So, to start with, why don't you tell me a little bit about where you grew up? Um, I actually grew up in a little town in Essex called Leon Sea. Um, not the most creative town, not the most uh, open-minded uh, people living in that town. So, um, it's kind of a miracle that I ended up here, to be honest, but I had a great upbringing. Um, Went to normal school and then ended up moving to London when I went to university. Okay. And um, what, you know, what was, what was your first experience then of what you do now for a living or something like what you do for a living and how did that, what was your sort of, how did that affect your decisions going forward? Um, well, I was pretty lucky because, yeah, I grew up on, in a small town in Essex, but my that was just I lived with my mum and then my dad um, remained living in London and um, I'd come up on the weekends and see him and then inevitably him working in um, advertising and marketing he had his own small um, agency he had to take me in on the weekends sometimes um, whether he was pitching or whatever and so I kind of saw him sort of creatively directing his team of designers and I remember thinking that that looks like a really cool job he was just kind of like plucking ideas out of thin air and then pointing at a Mac screen and telling them what to do and to make the logo bigger I'm sure um, but I must have been about seven when I was exposed to that and I'm so grateful I was because that gave me a bit of an end goal to point all my education towards um, and I know so many of my friends that were still at university who still didn't know what they wanted to do <laughs> so it was really good in that aspect so yeah and what did you um, having been exposed to that and kind of having a bit of an appetite for it what did you go on to, you know did you choose specific things to study at school or 
Um, yeah, so, I mean, vocational courses weren't really a thing when I was at school, but um, there was a, a GCSE called Graphic Products, which was a bit crap, but at least it was, it was something. Um, but then at college it got a little bit more um, creative, but they did have a, a graphics course. I mean, I didn't know how to open Photoshop, and they didn't teach us how to do that. We were painting, mostly, so I don't really know how it got called graphics. But I did that, and I did psychology and media studies and English literature. So, like, I, I literally, as you can tell from that, selection was kind of it was built around the idea of me wanting to be in advertising. Um, and then went on to do, uh, what was my course called? Creative Advertising Strategy right. <laughs> at London College of Communication since been shortened to advertising <laughs> thank god um a bit of a mouthful but it was that was a great course as well um and that was on elephant and castle roundabout uh so yeah i went and did all that and did the general track really um i was able to get a lot of help and scholarships um um because of my single parent background so that was amazing because i wouldn't have been able to afford to go to university had it not been for that um and yeah then I just started interning as soon as I could I'd been we were lucky in fact on Friday nights we would get people in from the industry and they'd set live briefs and all sorts and we had one with Anomaly for uh, Sony Walkman actually and we just went hell for leather on this on this live brief all of our university work went aside and we were just focusing on this thing because it was this, it was a real tangible brief from a real amazing agency that had an internship offer at the end of it so we were only in our second year at that point, and we were up against the whole year of our course, but um, yeah, we smashed it, to be fair to us, and we got the internship, and you just need that one internship on your portfolio or on your CV that then can start the ball rolling, and people go, oh, well, she's had industry, she's had industry experience, so she must be alright, and it kind of just went from there, interned for two years after that. Oh, uh, placements? Yeah. And um, were they all paid? Uh, yeah. Were. Yeah, I mean, thankfully, we were in a position where we came out of university and we had a portfolio that we entered into this cream portfolio competition that was run by the talent business, and that got our book into the UK top 20, which meant that we got to go to their event, and that put us in a room with so many amazing creative directors, and just from that one event that was held at Mother got us so many weeks of months in fact of internships just lined up one after the other and they're all in respectable agencies that pay their staff um, although there was one agency that I won't name that they did offer us an internship but they offered us such a ridiculous amount of money and we on principle said no yeah. big agency as well so I think you know you just have to have sort of self-confidence and self-belief that you are worth being paid and that you should yeah. stand up for that 100% so um, yeah thankfully we got we got paid for everything um, but again I think that was also down to the experience that we've managed to gather whilst at university we had done some internships while studying um, so that gave us a bit of a foothold I suppose yeah which was uh, very helpful and um, one of those inevitably converted into a job um, took some time. Yeah, I mean, I think it does, doesn't it? I think two years is probably about a batting average for a lot of people coming out of um, college. What do you think you did differently in that one that converted? You know, because there's lots of things that are out of your control, like 
the agency has the money, they are potentially looking for a team or they've got enough money that even if they're not looking, they can hire you. But things that are within your control, what do you think you know you did differently on that one that converted to the others? We, we just wanted it. I know that sounds ridiculous, but we did get offered a job um, in the time, but we turned it down. Um, it just wasn't the right account for us. They were offering us um, 100% contract on this global car brand. And the, the creative output of that account was just useless. Like, it was really, really bad. And that would have been our portfolio, so we turned it down. But when we walked into our very first book crit with my first agency, Analog Folk, my partner and I, we ran outside onto the street and jumped up and down and we were like, oh, we found it, this is the one we want. And it just had a lovely culture and we walked in there and we saw loads of people that looked like us and that we thought we could be mates with mm-hmm. and they were in digital at the time when digital was really exciting and we didn't really know what it was going to be and people were really pushing the boundaries of it and we thought, yeah, this is definitely what this is where we want to end up so we just gave it everything we had and it really paid off and I think also stars aligned in the sense that you know they did have the money they were actually looking for a job they weren't just bringing in placements for the sake of it um, so yeah I think that was pretty much just came down to deciding that that was the one we wanted and just giving it our all yeah and how are you defining giving it your all you know were you what sort of hours were you putting in there um, it wasn't awful because I don't know I I kind of feel like if you can't crack some briefs in like your 8 hour day then maybe either you need to just get more teams in or you need to be more efficient or something like I just think it's too crazy to try and do these 16 hour days because you're just never going to be creative it's too much so we were always quite good at saying, right, okay, 7.30, say, we'd call it a day. Because my, my creative partner would want to get up early, and I'm useless in the mornings. So our working hours just never really matched up. So by the time sort of 7.30 came around, my creative partner was like falling asleep on her desk. Yeah. <laughs> so we couldn't work late anyway. But it was more just about grabbing hold of every single brief and just, like, it was creative energy. It wasn't necessarily like hours and weekends we did we did do that for a lot of our interns and internships we were in there on weekends and staying till 10 11 o'clock at night but actually the culture at analog folk didn't really they didn't ask for that because they were a bit more about work-life balance so as long as we were delivering which we were um, we were able to give it our all but within a normal work-life balance yeah. set of hours which was really nice probably one of the reasons why we liked it there as well everyone was kind of relaxed but still passionate yeah so I suppose more it's more uh, what I'm getting from what you're saying tell me if I'm wrong is more about focus on enthusiasm rather than just like staying late you know yeah. working weekends and things like that exactly because I think I've, I've been victim to it if I'm not happy in a job or if I don't believe in a project or I'm not excited by a brief I can get it get given the brief and then I just sit on it for days because mm. I just don't I don't care yeah. <laughs> shh I don't do my creative directions <laughs> but when you're 
Like, my end goal wasn't necessarily smash this brief. My end goal was get this job. Yeah. Which gave me that fire and that excitement and that passion for every single project that was landing on my desk at Analog Folk. Um, so we were just, yeah, focused on everything and, like, eye on the prize. And I think that really came through in everything that we were doing. And I think that's why they, they hired us. Okay. And it's an interesting one now. Everything you were doing was geared towards you getting that job. Yeah. And then you got it. Yeah. So then what? <laughs> um, we got it off the back of the fact that we'd won them a pitch. Big, big pitch for a big global client. It's a big global project. And, like, we got the job and then we were straight into production on our first project. And it was a small agency at the time, small team we just had to hit the ground running and we didn't have time to even stop and think about the fact that oh okay it's fine now I've got a job it was okay now we need to launch this project in two months time <laughs> so that kind of was the the context to the first bit of um, our working life and our permanent, first permanent contract but then that project ended up all falling through we delivered everything um, and they just decided not to put it live and that was a challenge to get over that after you've like worked your ass off trying to get this job and then you work your ass off trying to deliver your first project and they gave us so much autonomy there as well like we ran that whole shoot as juniors on our own it was amazing right. and we it was having that autonomy made me so much more motivated as well because I just had to do a good job there wasn't a choice <laughs> but yeah that that slump after it not going live was really difficult to recover from. So how did you deal with that then? Because that is pretty, I mean, I've not heard a um, placement sort of conversion story like that where it's like, not only did you get the job that then you went straight into production with basically, and handled that on your own on a massive project on, de you know, from day one. So there's going to be quite a, yeah, quite a big slump when that suddenly doesn't work out. How did you deal with that? I'm not, I'm not gonna lie, it took me a very long time. I didn't handle it well at all. I started questioning my whole career choice, which is unfortunate, because I decided at age seven that that's what I wanted to <laughs> <Yeah>. do. <laughs> Big um, investment. Yeah, and I'm screwed now, because if I don't want to be in advertising anymore, I don't have the education that's broad enough to um, help me do anything else. But anyway, yeah, I was, I didn't handle it that well, to be honest. It was just a case of just keeping going and waiting for the next big project that was exciting. And it's it's taken a long time. I think that's actually why I ended up going outside of the agency to create projects that I really believed in because I seem to have spent a lot of my career waiting for the for the great project to come along, and I've worked on so much stuff that hasn't come off in the end. And I think that's what you don't get told when you go into the industry. Um, you're not warned about the fact that most of your creativity, which takes a little part of your soul every time you come up with an idea and give it to somebody, most of that just lives in presentation decks that never see the light of day. And, you know, you can pour yourself into it and it just doesn't end up happening. And I don't think you get taught resilience, um, which is probably the biggest thing that you probably need for this job. <laughs> um, so yeah I think I don't know I kept going and then I decided that I wanted to do 
something better than what the briefs I was being given. So that's when I started my side project a few years later. And that's a very good uh, segue into that. And actually, because I, you know, I heard you talk at Nurture Side Side Hustle, and as a result, that's what that's, you know reached out, and that's why we sat where we are. And your reasoning for um, any side hustle was, I thought, the logic was bulletproof, and that you know, in a creative company, you're only as good as the brief you get, and you're only as good as the brief you can make for yourself and then make happen with little or no money and lots of favours and 90% of your stuff, you know, your creativity um, just ends up in a deck um, in a meeting mm. and like, goes no further. So actually, it would be interesting, before you talk about what your side project is, I know what it is, people listening might not, um, I really enjoyed the way you spoke about your kind of 100% your kind of percent thing yeah. I think that's a really interesting thing to talk about so I'm trying to think of a good segue to get you into that now but I can't think of a good one no pressure so um, <laughs> you spoke about how hard I've got it now I think. <laughs> you spoke about how hard you were working at agencies and then a realisation that you had about you could be working maybe not quite as hard do you want to sort of explain that yeah. slightly better than I just did <laughs> well yeah this is it so I was putting 100% of my creative efforts and energy and even a lot of my normal socialising hours and weekends into projects and really not getting anywhere and the briefs weren't improving and I wasn't creating the work that I wanted to be creating and then I kind of realised that in order to create the stuff I wanted to create then I needed to go outside of the agency walls but someone kind of told me once that actually if you're just getting your head down and scurrying away quietly at your desk then you're never going to be seen as a visionary you're kind of the dependable backup for the crap jobs and the crap briefs so they're like oh Scarlett will do it she's she's a hard worker oh what that needs to be that needs to be delivered in 48 hours yeah sure Scarlett will handle it fuss free and actually that was something that was getting me nowhere and I realised that I needed to kind of refocus a little bit and someone once said to me that stop trying to give 100% Scarlet because actually everybody else is only giving 60 and I thought oh it's a very fair point you know you meet loads of people you walk through in life and just thinking how have you got to where you are <laughs> and I realised that what I just needed to do was still outshine those people so I worked out that about 70% of my efforts should go on to my day job so I'm still giving more than everybody else in the agency and still shining but not perhaps as much and then you take that extra 30% and you do something amazing with that extra time and that energy and you know that looks like maybe using a sick day here and there to create your project or oh, the plumber's coming in, oh, I've got to stay at home today. And it's little, slightly rebellious acts, but actually, everyone takes a sick day. I never took a sick day before I refocused myself because I was absolutely point blank refused. I'm not the person that takes sick days. I am in the office every damn day, whether I'm dying or not. Actually, everyone takes a sick day. And if you're doing it to empower yourself and create something amazing in the world, then actually that's fine <laughs> and 
you know, obviously I was, it wasn't, it didn't happen a lot, but if it really came down to the crunch, I would, I would call in. But otherwise it was sort of working on my lunch breaks or rather than taking a project home with me, I would do work on my side project in the evenings. And yeah, it just kind of refocused me altogether. Um, and I think it, like all that list of accolades that you read out that will sound very impressive about me, not one of them is about the work I've done inside the, in the industry itself. Every single thing is as a result of my side project. And I think I kind of did the right thing to refocus in the way that yeah. I did. It's, it's really interesting, actually, because I think people listening are smart, and I think they all probably know that when you talk about side projects, you probably don't mean, and I'm dragging this out because the side project's really interesting, but the context to it is interesting too. You're, when you're talking about your side project, you probably don't mean buying and selling things on eBay. It's <laughs> going to be a creative side project, isn't it? Yeah. And as much as um, people that are in management of agencies listening might go, that's outrageous and preposterous that you took a sick day to work on your side project. The reality is, as soon as your side project is born and goes out into the world and gets any kind of recognition or critical acclaim as something creative that you've made, the reality is your company is going to be quite happy to align itself with that thing oh, or to yeah. shout about the fact that you work at that company. So, um, And I'm sure people listening are aware of that, but it's almost... The reality is, by by being, inverted, um, inverted commas, selfish, you're actually doing the best thing for your company mm. that you work for that's yeah. judged on its creative products, effectively. Yeah, I'd actually really like the opportunity to speak to that a little bit because there seems to be this little undercurrent of, oh, look at me, I'm a rebel, creative directors that are standing up against side projects and saying that, you're not truly dedicated to the industry if you're doing side projects. Surely you should put all of your energy into making your projects better. But I tried that for years and I got nowhere. And I poured my heart and soul into the briefs I was given and all I ended up making was gifts on Facebook for three years. And I was not given the opportunity. And, you know, the industry is not this romanticised version of the industry that they might have grown up in back in the 80s, but it's it's hard to get noticed and to get recognised and there's so many people in it and everyone's doing a great job and I think you do have to do something to set yourself apart from everybody else and to actually prove your worth and I'm such a better employee now because A, I have some self-confidence and I believe in my ideas and I know what I can achieve because I've gone and done it off my own back and B, like I've got this wealth of new skills or if you're telling me okay right we need another we need q3 content for that client that you've done 17 times what how is that expanding my capabilities and my skill sets it just isn't i could do those briefs in my sleep by the end of it and you're like well you should be actively encouraging people to have side projects because maybe the jobs that you're giving your junior creatives or your midwives or whoever they are aren't aren't creatively fulfilling and they could be out there learning all these new skills and getting all the self-confidence that they desperately need. Yeah. Uh, and I, even just beyond skill, skills and, and expanding professionally, just for your your happiness, I think. You know, I had a sort of mini-crisis a few weeks ago, I think, where I, 
I actually reached out to the person that wrote it, but the, the, they basically run a really, really successful like app and games company. And I've read it; they, they write a lot. And I wrote some, uh, read something they'd written, and they said something about you know that they've set this company up, and you know, and, and they've had a lot of success and critical acclaim, um, and they have. And then there was just this one line in it where they sort of said, "I realised I was constantly searching for my identity in my work." Um, constantly looking for the project that was going to make me feel whole and make me feel um, successful or like I'd made it um, and the reality is you you know you're never ever going to find that in um, in a in a in any not just the industry we're in in any job where there's always another project and the reality is so much is out of your control and I sort of I'm, I, I'm kind of better for going through that weird little Couple, like three day period that I went through because I've gone you know what actually I, I probably do need to be doing more stuff outside of work because you know whether a project happens or not no matter how good that idea is or bad it is whether it happens or not I've got a limited amount of control over it versus I suppose like a side project mm. where it's like it happens if you make it happen and it doesn't if you if you don't I guess that's actually I think I would have had similar crisis reading that had I not created Crack Insider because they've hit the nail on the head there I feel like I've shown my true colours I've shown my identity everything that I am as a creative is in that project and I think I was looking for that kind of validation or that kind of project and to be able to put my stamp on it and yeah show my creativity but it just wasn't coming along and you're right I don't think maybe it ever would have done and Crack Insider was my opportunity to say, hey, look, this is me <laughs> in yeah. an idea. This is how I would treat things. This is what I want to do. This is my voice, my art direction. Like, I, yeah, it's part of me, I suppose. And I would never have been able to do that for a client. And that's a pretty powerful thing to be able to say, put that out into the world. And people like it and want to write about it. And it's been successful. You just feel like, yeah, this is what I'm capable of. And that's something that actually brought my creative abilities to the attention of a lot of creative directors in town. They wouldn't have known that I even existed had it not been for Crack Insider. And now I'm working at an agency at 18 Feet and Rising and they are giving me all the opportunity to create all these amazing campaigns and they're giving me lots of freedom and because they've seen what I can do. So, um, we've, we've said it now, so <laughs> tell me, so Crack Insider think a good way to talk about this is what is it and then why did you call it Crack Insider? Um, Crack Insider is a shop where you can buy useful items for homeless people and then we take those items that have been bought and distribute them around shelters and soup kitchens and the reason it's called Crack Insider is because when we researched why people weren't giving cash to homeless people on the street um, a homeless guy said to us people don't give me cash on the street because I think I'll spend it on crack and cider and we were like that's that's a good one <laughs> but yeah. at first we were like well, we can't ever call it that we had it on our top of our list of names but we were like no, we have still had our client hat on no we can't call it that no way and then in the end everything else we came up with was just subpar so we just ran with it because yeah. we realised thankfully hang on a minute here are our stakeholders here are our, like who are our clients us do we like it yes go <laughs> um, so yeah it's been incredibly successful like we honestly just had it as a 
little sort of thousand pound goal to ourselves. We were like, right, if we can make a thousand, if we can get a thousand pounds worth of stuff bought on our shop that we can then buy stuff for homeless people with, then we've made it. Like that would be a successful project to us. A hundred thousand dollars later in four cities, we're like, okay, <laughs> this is not quite how we expected it to turn out. Um, but yeah, it's been a journey. Yeah, it's turned into a bit of a, a beast now. So uh, I don't even know how to phrase this question. What? So what do you do? So you've had a hundred thousand. How are you fulfilling that? Like, how, have you got? What's your infrastructure for this thing that was just this idea that you kind of went? Oh, this should exist in the world, and I want to make it. Maybe we'll make a thousand pounds. And then you've now made a hundred times, well, not a hundred times, it's dollars, isn't it? But a lot, lot more than that. So yeah. what what happens next? What? Well, first step is put it out into the world. How do you do that? You create a minimum viable product because if you try and think, okay, we're going to start this charity that's going to open up in four cities around the world, you just freeze up and go, oh, no, can't possibly do that. So we just realise that you know if we're doing this in our evenings and weekends we need to simplify the shit out of this and make it completely achievable in our spare time so we boiled it down to the five most useful products um, that we th- that homeless people need um, put them on a Shopify website that we built ourselves did all our own photography did all our own design work um, except for the logo itself that was designed by somebody but um, yeah we just opened in a pop-up store in an existing shop so we just had to come in and paint the shelves and put the products up and just kept it as scaled back as physically possible in the beginning and then just PR'd the hell out of it um, and because it was a world's first and because it was a brand new idea and no one had ever heard of it before and because it had crack in the name yeah. <laughs> journalists were like great can we come and interview you uh, sure yeah fine we're here uh, anyway lo and behold a couple of weeks later we were on BBC Primetime News and we were being written about like in Japanese newspapers we've got clippings in there like this is mental um, so the fulfilment of that order because we went crazy in the first because we promised to deliver everything by Christmas but we just had to, to sort of put a deadline on that for people because there was just no way we were going to be able to to do any of that but We've got quite a simple model of we buy bulk wholesale um, and we then plug into existing shelters and soup kitchens who then give it out to the people that they're dealing with every day so that the homeless people already have that relationship with these shelter managers or the volunteers so it's not just two advertising girls turning up in a van like just throwing coats out the back of a lorry but it's kind of a neat way of dealing with it in quite a quick way so we don't actually have to do a great deal for it um, I mean it was the thing that seems to take most of the time now is actually the PR and the marketing um, because the fulfilment is sort of like I call up my suppliers and they distribute straight to the shelters now so it's pretty seamless actually <laughs> and then it's a model that can be adapted to a new city so we opened the San Francisco branch ourselves, but then we had people email us from New York and were like, hey, we think this would really work here. And we were like, sure. And we just kind of helped them and managed that process. And um, they opened for, uh, for last winter. 
And then, yeah, Bournemouth opened this January, and it's kind of a bit of a, almost like a franchise thing, really. Yeah. We've got a little starter pack, and they just call us, and we're hopefully launching in Brighton this year. So it's um, it's exciting, but we've managed to do it in such a way that it's not too difficult to run. Yeah. Which I suppose is a little bit of a learning for people listening about you know, not to limit anyone when they're dreaming these kind of dreams, but I think, you know, if you've got a full-time job as well, you, you do need to be quite smart, strategic, mm. and sort of go, what's the minimum vi- viable product here, or how can I do this and, you know, have my cake and eat it too, and mm. still have my day job and not have to work till 12 o'clock at night, every night, on my side. I mean, you're going to have to put in a few late nights, ultimately, to make it yeah. happen, but... 100%, but I think you can, you can only choose where you put your energy, so... Um, we put us into um, PR and into having a proper launch event um, and the launch event took up so much of our time we were trying to get sponsors for food and for drink and trying to get all the journalists down and get a speaker panel and oh, it was a nightmare but um, obviously we also knew when when we started it we were actually only going to open it just for that Christmas it was just going to be a little month long pop up shop but because of the success of it it obviously continued but we kind of had a deadline in our minds so we kind of knew that we were giving up a few months of our social life and weekends and evenings but we always had a deadline in our head we just thought we were going to close after Christmas so it wasn't too scary when we started out but also you know you're, we're creatives we can like we came up with this idea for this the shop for the homeless people and we envisioned this like department store for homeless people that like had everything that they could ever possibly desire and it would have our own fleet of vans to distribute all of our stuff and we'd employ homeless people in our shop and that it would just it was this big massive thing but you just have to think your way out of it and you can always figure out how, like, creatively, how to to do things in a much simpler way and still execute the idea. So that's just what we have to do, really. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like a never-ending brief, but it's kind of <laughs> a never-ending brief that you want, isn't it? Yeah. I suppose when we go back to that stuff about you know managing your own happiness and stuff, it's like, I suppose in an agency, it's like you get the brief. Do you good? Do you, do you do a good job on it on it or not? Given the parameters and the context and the politics and all the other factors that affect the work. Um, and then the inevitable answers are yes, no, sort of. And then the you know the industry looks at it and judges it, and the public look at it and judge it. And then it's like, and it's like you were deemed to not do a good job on that. And then you're like, right now you got your next brief. Whereas what's so great about what you're describing is, you know, it's like well it never ends. So it's like if you know it can always be better, it can always get bigger. Um, you can always make it more what you want it to be, um, which is brilliant. Um, so. What's an average day look like for you now then? So you're, you know, by day you're a creative, a creative agency. You've also got this $100,000 um, side project that you're, you're running in four cities around the world or more now because there's Bournemouth as well. Um, well, actually what's happened is San Francisco ran for two years and New York just ran for a year and it wasn't, wasn't the biggest success story, um, which was surprising because we really believed that New York was going to get it. Um, but I just don't think the Americans are ready for it 
they got really offended by the name. Um, so actually, we've ended up because my my partner who I started all of this with, Charlie, um, she moved to San Francisco, so that's why we took it to the states. But we've now just decided to close it down. So it sounds all very. Um, we have launched, but we are also not keeping it going in all the cities. So at the moment, all it is is London and Bournemouth, and hopefully opening in Brighton. But Bournemouth is run by an incredible team that are just like doing their own thing down there. And I think that's the thing, you just have to have, you can't treat it like your baby, you have to just let things go when you're running it in your spare time because you just don't have the time to do everything yourself. You have to just accept that from the get-go. So actually Crack Insider stuff is pretty low maintenance, thankfully, because I have just taken this job at 18 feet and I am now in a position where I'm like, okay, this job and its ethos, its a B Corp, um, the clients, the projects, the opportunity here is massive and I believe in it and I'm aligned with everything that they, they are. So actually I'm going to focus on solely on this for as long as I can. I'm going to keep cracking side of running but it will just be on the back burner because actually I do... I do want to grab this opportunity at 18 feet with both hands and I, and I intend to to make the most of it that's brilliant so <laughs> the the side project which kind of um, you know you weren't maybe getting what you wanted in your professional career um, or certainly not from a creative fulfilment point of view and so you went externally to do something um, which then became so big it's then turned your career into what you want your Career to be, so that's amazing. So very um, kind of empowering for anyone that's listening. And I think it, I suppose the most important important thing is is that you ju- you just started, didn't you? You just made a website and mm. you just started, and then it exactly. it just snowballs from there. I suppose, isn't it? It really does. I mean, I remember one of our first iterations of our online portfolio. Me and my old team member, teammate. That's weird. Um, we were called the eco-friendly creative team or something equally as awful and we'd always had this idea that we wanted to do purpose-driven work and you know I go and talk to loads of students now and they all really want to do purpose-driven work and we were told at the time that that was completely naive and we were never going to be able to do that but I still held on to it and actually now because I've done Crack Insider it all was kind of pointing me in that direction and funnily enough I've had quite a few phone calls from people um, at some like agencies with those sort of roles now so I have actually managed to it was almost like the world's most elaborate form of self branding doing Crack Insider because people see me as this the the social good creative now and it's funny when I think back to that first situation in my portfolio and people telling me I, I was naive but it's happened yeah kind of carved out that niche and presumably also for really provocatively named companies you're, you're getting phone calls where people want um, names that are going to get PR I guess <laughs> uh, yeah not, not, many not so much that one that, but I mean I'd be I'd be into it yeah <laughs> so alright so for anyone that's listening that is obviously finding all this stuff very inspiring and very impressive and then is in the back of their head going you know but I could never do that what would you say to someone listening that um, maybe is you know, they've they've gone through school, and maybe they, you know, maybe they're in a job now, but they're not happy, and they're listening to what you're saying, going, "That sounds amazing. I'd love to do that." 
and they can't afford to go back to uni and you know we're talking about the importance of just starting what would step one to three look like for them now where they go they're doing a job they don't really like they'd love to be doing the job you're doing what, what do they need to do um, I think for me a huge part of um, Cracking Tyler it would not have got off the ground if I hadn't been um, working with Charlie um, obviously that's 50% of the workload taken off your hands when you're with a partner and we came up with the idea um, together um, so it was very much it was never like oh I've got my idea and I've taken it to somebody else she always felt as much ownership over the idea and, and so did I so it was very much a partnership from the get go which meant that we were able to make it um, together but I think buy a domain because <laughs> yeah. once you've got that and set yourself a deadline like we we did all the normal stuff like we're going we're to buy a domain and we're going to get all the social um, media um, channels signed up obviously there weren't many crack insiders so we were all set to go but most people just stop there right? and we managed to get our place in our pop-up shop and that was when it became real and that's when we were working towards a very real deadline and we have to get ourselves in order for this and I think we just pulled strings like we just Charlie had met this guy who was the owner of a shop and we just were like can we come in and pitch to take those two shelves at the back of your shop and he was like sure weird <laughs> um, he really liked the idea and got behind it and it was like we just hustled our way into getting that space in that shop but that was like oh okay shit we actually have to do this now yeah. so I think once you um, create I think you've got to create a project if you're not working in the creative industries you have to prove with something that you're capable of creating or coming up with an idea and executing it well um, but I don't know, it depends, where, it depends where they're coming from. So are these people that I'm creating this three-step guide for, are they um, working in the creative industries already? Or is this for broad, wide world? I think, um, well, you know, the reality is anyone could be listening to this, but, you know, probably not millions of people um, <laughs> but some people will listen to it yourself. Um, and they could be anyone but I guess you know I guess I don't know maybe they're in a maybe they're in a job um, but they're a they're a creative person and they're not fulfilled because they're not in a job that's given them that opportunity um, and they'd like to end up in a job as a as a creative at an ad agency um, which ultimately is going to give them the space and the skills to create in, in their day job, but also mm -hmm. if they if they want to go out and create outside of that, they can. What does you know? What does step one look like? Even just step one for them. Step one, I think. Well, I think advertising people love an event. They love a talk. Most of these sort of events and stuff are free, so I think going to meetups and networking and just harassing people is uh, politely harassing people is um, a big step because being active in active in the community is like <laughs> <laughs> is kind of as wanky as it sounds 
like it's the way that you get to know people it's the way that you get invited into the doors and into book crits because you need to have a portfolio of work and ideas and they can kind of be treated as your free education you just people are more than willing to give up you know 45 minutes to an hour of their time in the day to just look through your ideas and steer you in the right direction and I mean I do it a few times a week and I know loads of other creatives that do so I think getting a book together and there are lots of different you know resources online about how you can do that like we chatted before we started recording about what ad school and things like that they're the basics but I think get into the industry events get networking get your foot into the door for book crits and then eventually you'll have a, a nice sort of network of people that you can potentially get them to give you get, give you your first internship it's kind of all the same similar journey but if you do it without the actual formal education bit then I think going around doing book crits is pro- it's probably going to take you longer to get to the to the output of, um, of this sort of polished advertising book um, but you can still 100% get there and I was actually um, in a book crit today with a young team and I said to them I, I was all proud of myself because I got a first in my degree not once has anybody asked me what I got in my degree <laughs> ever it's just they just look at your book so if you can get just a website with five decent ideas in it then you're laughing really <laughs> okay and what is um, what is mi- what do you deem to be missing from most book like so if, if step one is get out to the events and then that sort of naturally segues into a step two of build a kind of build a, a group of people around you that can help you will help you will look at your work give you feedback and then I suppose step three is kind of harass them until they give you your internship like there's a lot there's a lot of meetings there isn't there with your yeah. portfolio of work what you know all the you know you're seeing say three four student student or aspiring creative teams a week what what is the common thread that's kind of missing in their folio because obviously ideas can always be better and they can always be executed better um, and the way those ideas come to life can always be better but are there any themes that, you're, that you see where you, you think they're not you know people are not being told they need to do X or not do Y or do more of something or to be honest I'm the standard work that I'm seeing in books is, is really good and I don't think it's necessarily that students and people aren't being steered wrong I think the industry is just harder and harder to get into because there are just less jobs going and you know the gig economy is rising and more people are freelancing and there are less permanent roles not to sound you know Debbie Downer on the whole situation but like some of the books I see maybe if we were in the 80s they would have all been hired by now <laughs> um, because there is money free flowing being thrown around agencies but yeah I think they're all been really amazing and varied and for me although I did some DNAD um, mentoring and it was like a proper it was set up to be an art direction mentoring session it's like speed dating and I think that not many people had actually come in with art direction 
ideas. It was all like concepts for ads, and it was all very nice, but they were just showing me scamps. And I was like, well, how can I judge your art direction when you're showing me scamps? So I think it's stuff that maybe they just haven't quite worked out yet. Maybe that comes from being actually in the industry, that there's like the concept idea, then there's the copywriting, but then I never really see an actual art directional idea in books. They're always just like, here's the here's the photo with the line over it, and or here's the setup, or here's the scene, or this is what the lifestyle image would be. And as an art director myself, I kind of always end up telling people, push the art direction, what's the brand world you're going to create for these people, is there going to be illustration, how do you use typography, what's the photography style if it's just going to be photography. Um, like just give it a feel because I find it really difficult to tell just from a black and white scamp but I also know that that's very conflicting advice to what most people in the industry give um, so whether or not people choose to to listen to that is completely up to them but yeah I just feel like even when they're coming to me for art direction advice there's still no real art direction and a lot of people they're asking me what does that mean right okay so that's not not been yeah not being communicated very clearly to yeah, people coming I, in. I didn't know there was a difference between, like, I didn't really realise that there was, like, there's also an idea in, in the visual, like that is a concept, an art directional concept is also going to be in, a, like, another layer on top, and I, I've been explaining that to students, I've had to sort of teach them what that means, um, and I'm sure they must know it when they start to realise but they're so focused on the idea, the idea, the idea but also it's just as much of a skill to work out what the visual idea is and I think that's missing actually, now that I talk myself into that, I've realised that's yeah. what I'm telling everybody Okay, that's very interesting, so we need to be combating that a little bit and you know, you say it's counter to what people in other agencies are saying and maybe some people would say that, but I think the reality is you know, whatever media idea lives in it needs to look like something sound like something or feel like something mm. and um, thought needs to go into that doesn't it you know yeah. even if something's just going to uh, en- ultimately end up in a not to decry banner ads but in a <laughs> banner ad you know still there needs to be a typeface chosen there needs to be a palette of colours chosen there needs to be a photography style yeah and there needs to be a lot of thought that goes into it more than just here's the pun we'll put in the banner and if that's not being communicated then you know it's going to yeah, the work's going to suffer wherever mm. it lives I suppose and I think it goes beyond like just typography and colour palettes it's also I'm not an art director <laughs> <laughs> no but this is the thing it's like so for example the uh, BBC World Cup 2018 film has just come out incredible piece of art direction because the whole thing is um, stop frame animation of embroidered tapestry and they have printed out not printed out but it's like a uh, an embroidery machine that makes these tapestries and they have made it frame by frame and then just photographed it and stitched it together as a stop frame animation out of actual embroidery like they could have just the idea in the script is just oh we'll just relive moments from past uh, world cups but they've done it in a tapestry like the art direction is the idea and that makes it and I think that actually if you start thinking art direction first not necessarily anything wrong with that you know you can 
you can create something visually stunning and that can be just as impactful as a really tight concept mm. so um, I think that's missing a lot in um, education yeah I, I watched that the other day and um, so actually the guys that run BBC Creative now gave uh, Laura and I our uh, our third placement and they were like they were like the team that we just religiously would go and see because they were so um, they were just so helpful and kind of gave us so Is much of their time huh? not Arvid oh, uh, well they're ECD so it's uh, oh, Aidan and yeah, Laurent yeah. they're ECDs now BBC Creative and they were you know and our book was just never any good <laughs> and it was never good enough and like in the end they were, they were so lovely and they just said to us they were like you, like, you've seen us so many times. You so obviously won this, and we'll give you a we'll give you a shot. And we went wow. into Alamany. We didn't convert it sadly. But it was so nice that they gave us the shot. But um, yeah, like I mean, that's the that's a so a much bigger PR headline almost that this film you're about to watch. Every single frame of it um, exists in the physical world as something that has been embroidered for real. <laughs> Is a is a much bigger story than um, this film recreates moments from football history. Yeah. So absolutely. So yeah, the art direction is the idea. Exactly, um, and that's just not communicating. I think it's such a shame because I don't know. There's you just see so many ads that might have a good idea, and it's just a picture and, and a line. Yeah. It's such a wasted opportunity. Okay. Wow. So, all right. So, some serious thought needs to go into that. I think. I think. I think. But I think that's probably correlating with probably just a, a lot of talk around people, the way people are interacting with media is very different now, particularly for young people. You know, for people in their twenties and, and downwards. Are like, you know, I did a workshop a couple of weeks ago, and we just said, who, who watched something? who watched something last night obviously every hand went up and we said how many people watched something on Netflix and it was like 90% of the hands went up Prime the other 5% and then you know did anyone watch something on Channel 4 or ITV or whatever and it was like not a single hand went out oh, went no. out <laughs> and the remaining 5% had all gone out for a beer or done something mm. um, and so I guess because there's so much talk around people you know people aren't consuming media where they can be exposed to advertising um and it's a shame because kind of hand in hand in that with that probably less care and craft is going into the stuff that we are making but it's like well if the stuff that people are seeing is less less crafted less considered and less thoughts come into it then yeah, it's no surprise that it's not working when, even when people do see it so um, exactly we have so much less time to consume stuff as well so if you can get people with a stunning visual then they're in they're hooked it takes point however like point one of a second or I made that stat up don't quote me on that <laughs> but to grab someone with an incredible visual whereas if someone's got to read a line and it comes down to the time it takes to read a line now is too long and someone's already off mm. so you just need to grab someone with the visual in order to make them even read your three words on your page because they're just gone otherwise so yeah <laughs> It's a sad state of affairs. Yeah, it's it like not helped by like clickbait <laughs> headlines, is it? Ugh, Why no. doctors hate her? Why do doctors hate her? I'm so curious. I always click. <laughs> <laughs> you do click, don't you? They're just too good. 
or he didn't know the cameras were still rolling. You're like, well, I wonder what he did. He didn't know they were. <laughs> and it's know. never anything. <laughs> no, I know. It's like it just links through to a site that links through to a site. You just like, you get caught in this like rabbit hole of just click, like link throughs. You're like, <laughs> I really do want to know what he did, not knowing the cameras were still rolling. Can someone just tell me? Yeah. Um, look. Thank you so much. Um, I think this has been really, really, really great. And that's a lot of really, really cool stuff in there for people listening. Um, we can do some, what well, I've deemed, leisure questions Ooh, leisure. to wrap up, if you want. Yeah, cool. So on, the then. business is out of the way. That's quite mental. We do the leisure stuff. So, um, ah, here we are. I've told you this is not a polished <laughs> podcast. I've still got another question left in business. <laughs> Oh, well, no, because we're in leisure time now. We're in leisure now. Um, <laughs> it's a little back. bit leisure. Is there anyone who has massively helped you so far in your career and your creative endeavours that has no idea how much they've helped you that you'd like to sort of give a, give a shout-out to? to my 12 listeners? It's a real shame that no one just saw the chest bump. <laughs> Um, yeah, I suppose I'm not very good at telling people. So everyone that's helped me, I just I'm a bit too British to be all like, "Oh my god, you're amazing! You've done so much for me." But I think actually we should do that more. So my current ECDs um, at 18 feet, because I was um, in digital and I kind of wanted to get the opportunity to work outside of that, but I'd been typecast and. I'd been to see so many agencies and they were the first people to sort of look at my book and go, actually, you're not a digital person, you're an ideas person and we're going to give you this opportunity to do 360 TV, all the stuff that you've never been given the opportunity to do before. And I've been working towards that for a very long time. So that was... I've not quite told them how much it meant to be because I'm trying to talk all cool about it you know trying to be cool breezy yeah. but actually that meant the world to me um, too late now if they're one of my 12 <laughs> listeners they know well, I'm never um, going to tell them about this so. yeah. <laughs> um, and actually um, Rosie Arnold uh, at AMB powerhouse of a woman like just being in a meeting with her and watching her switch it on mm. you just go oh my god how can I soak up every bit of your talent I don't yeah. know how she was amazing. I only got to work with her for the year that I was at AMV, and I only worked with her on a couple of projects. But she's she is literally as incredible as everyone says she is. And actually, one was quite sad is my university course director. She has had such a huge impact. And actually, when we started Crack and Cider, we started this little like thing. We'd just say to each other, "What would Joe do?" And Joe was the name of our course director, and Joe would call it Crack and Cider. Joe would tell us to do that. We should totally put. She, she was such a rebel, and she always taught us to do what we shouldn't be allowed to do, and that's why it got called Crack and Cider. And sadly enough, she passed away, and she never got to hear about how much she impacted us. And you know, I'm, I'm sure that the, that that my side project lives and dies in. in the punchiness of the name and we only had the guts to do it because we'd been taught by her for three years and yeah it spurred us on actually as a collective to write a book about her teachings mm-hmm. um, so we all came together and collaborated on like the uh, lessons 
Lessons in Life and Advertising by Joe Hodges. We wrote it in her name. Because, um, yeah, actually, she had a huge impact, but we never told her. And then it was too late. So I think people listening, if anyone's done something good for you, you should call them up right now and tell them how grateful you are because it was actually really sad to think that she's never going to know. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah it's always awkward. It's when you're British, really awkward, isn't it? We've done... Uh, Laura and I have done a few recently. Um, but we it, we found a way to massively caveat it because you just send an email. Ideally, you meet in person, buy them a beer and say it. Um, and if you can't do that, we find that you can send an email and just call subject line super, super weird email. <laughs> and then go, this is super, super weird. And then, uh, and then you can go, but wanted to say a massive you know yeah it's very not British yeah, emails are fine because you know what actually the person receiving the email also doesn't want to have to look at you <laughs> as you cry you're like just make it so helpful yeah I love you um, yeah very true alright um, back to leisure leisure on my very polished podcast well I've only got 12 listeners um, alright so what is the book or books you find yourself giving away to people a lot or recommending to people oh um, I'm going to go with Sapiens just because it kind of you can get your head bogged right down into these advertising books and actually this one you just take a step back and you just look at humanity and why we're here and why we are wired in the way that we're wired and it, all of a sudden things start to matter less and I found that really powerful, so I definitely, I mean, I gave it to my mum for Christmas, and I think I've given it to, I tell everybody to get it, um, that will possibly listen to me, so yeah, I think it is a really amazing book. Have you read it? I have, yeah, it's one of those, it's just so embarrassing, one of those ones, I think I read about four chapters of it, and I was like, this is bloody amazing, and I was reading it on the train, and then... um, I think because I acquired it from some means other than buying it, uh, the file kind of corrupted. Oh, no. <laughs> but that's what you get when you um, buy things through other means other than um, yeah. well, do you know the what? way you're supposed to. I also was a little bit cheeky in the sense that I signed up for an Audible thing, so I did it in an audio file. Ah. Um, but I signed up for Audible and you get um, your first book free. So that was my first free book. Maybe I'll do that. Or I might just buy it, which is what people should do. Yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, you know, there is that option. Yeah. Um, Okay. If uh, someone had a gun to your head and you had to have one phrase tattooed on yourself, other than I had to do this because someone has a gun to my head, which someone (laughs) has answered, um, or end gun violence, someone else answered, (laughs) what phrase would you have tattooed on yourself? Oh, you've taken a good answer. To be honest with you... You wouldn't need to put a gun to my head. I've already tattooed a few phrases on myself in, in my time. Um, I've got, where are you going, tattooed on my foot. <laughs> yeah, I was young. Um, I've also got um, a poem, or the first line of a poem that my nan always used to say. I'll tell you it, shall I? Yes, I'd love to hear it. I'll show it everyone else. All 12 people. <laughs> <laughs> All 12 people. You're going to hear what my nan used to say. Um, here's to you, as good as you are, and here's to me, as bad as I am. But as bad as I am and as good as you are, I'm as good as you, as bad as I am. Oh, wow, okay. So it makes sense to me, um, but it's pretty much nonsense. What does it mean to you, then? <laughs> if you're willing to share. 
well, it's it just my nan used to say it every single time we sat around the table together. So she said it right up until she was like she remembered that nonsense verse until she was like ninety, which was always very um, impressive to me. But yeah, it's just going that you can be bad but be as good as a good person, and that's fine too. It's basically means be yourself, but in a really weird and roundabout way. So yeah, I think my answer will be that I've already tattooed phrases to myself and there was no gun. Shame. Um, what was the last thing that you saw, heard or experienced that made you say, Jesus, that's clever? If it's the new BBC World Cup ad, then we can just rest with that because that is pretty good. Well, I do actually have another answer, but it depends if we're running out of time and people are getting boring now, your 12 listeners are like starting to switch yeah. off. 11 now. <laughs> um, so one of my clients came into a meeting today and they had a um, blood pressure machine on because they get this thing where if they're being um, if they're having their blood pressure taken their blood pressure goes up because of the situation that they're in so they can never get an accurate read so they just strap them up to one and it just goes off by surprise (laughs) so they're taken by surprise and they get an accurate read of their blood pressure and it happens throughout the day and it's just this little it's thing. just the thing that gets tight on your yeah. arm. Yeah. You just wear that all day and it just... Yeah, and it just goes off throughout the day to surprise them. So, as, And then they take an average because they know that a lot of people get this, I think they called it white coat syndrome. Yeah. Of, like, panicking when you're, when someone's coming towards them um, in a medical environment, which is totally fair. So now um, I remember that was today and I thought, that's, that's bloody clever, that is. Yeah, that is smart. <laughs> I wonder how you do it with needles. <laughs> you just randomly just jab you throughout the day. Um, very good. Uh, all right, if you could enter a time machine that guaranteed return and also made you invincible in the time period that you were visiting, where would you go? Ooh. Can I go forward? Yeah. Any time period. Any time period. I would go forward by about 200 years. Not like mental forward, just 200 years. And just see where the planet's at. Because I feel like I'm trying to do everything in my power to do like nice stuff for the world and make purposeful driven marketing and get brands to do the right thing and make all this difference in the world. And like, it's not, it's, it's what I want to do and it's what I'm passionate about, so it's not hard. But at the same time, if I could go forward 200 years and know that it was all working towards something, yeah. It would be fine. It would make it so much easier. Yeah. <laughs> so if I could go for 200 years and just be like, oh no, we fucked it as humanity. Let's just, I'll give up now. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll just take a day off, you know? <laughs> I'll just sell all the diesel cars I can. <laughs> <laughs> or I can go for 200 years, explore a bit and go, oh, actually, yeah, we've come round. Yeah, we've done well. I, I, I played a part in that. Yeah, we can just go, okay. And it, obviously, I'm not saying that one of my ideas will be the thing that makes us okay in 200 years, yeah. but us all collectively as coming together to do stuff to try and make it better it'd just be good to know if it was going somewhere yeah uh, no I I, <laughs> I empathise with you on that it's like what are talking to about this someone was talking to me about they were talking to me about like, like, like this like obesity I think in this country it was a classic pub conversation <laughs> like someone was putting the world to rights and they were saying about talking about obesity to me and how 
how bad it is and like you know it's, you know it's not complicated all you need to do is not eat too much and exercise and all this stuff and you know my sort of opinion was that the trouble is is that's like that's a bottom up approach whereas if you go, if you look top down the reality is there's so much infrastructure in place in our country specifically in America as well but particularly in our country that actually does make people eat too much and too much of the wrong stuff at the wrong times mm. um, and there's, a, there's an entire infrastructure that supports that and you, you can't just place then all the blame on the individual no, because exactly. there's an entire infrastructure that's affecting their behaviour and their decisions and it, you know it's kind of this, it's kind of the same it's just like when the little man at the bottom no matter how hard he's fighting and how many creatives are out there trying to do purpose driven work and how many eco warriors are like <laughs> fighting the good fight when you've got entire infrastructures that are making bad things happen it's a bit like well <laughs> what <laughs> you know. can you do but you've got to keep fighting the good fight because yeah. you know Cracky Cider you know you raise over $100,000 now and what, what what does average, per, average person spend like do you have an average spend um, on £26 was the UK average bloody hell £29 it's gone down a little bit now so we started at £29 yeah. but that is started. About ten times what people give the average homeless person in change. So I think we found a piece of research that said the average spend in the charity sector is two pounds. Um, so fifteen times. So good maths. Pretty proud of that. That's yeah, I think it's just because we just reframed it. We put yeah. it in a retail space, not a charity space. Yeah. And twenty-nine pounds isn't that much to spend on a coat. You're just giving it to somebody else. Yeah. It's twenty-nine bad. pounds. Brilliant. Oh, it's Twenty-five pounds. So. It's like a super Tom's, you know, Tom's the shoes yeah. model. Um, even stronger than Tom's, really. And it's everything's going directly mm. to. Exactly. It's really cool. It's surprising, especially actually. The anchor point is not how much do I give a homeless person on the street. The anchor point is how much is a coat in the shops. Yeah. And it made it perfectly reasonable to spend twenty-five pound on a coat. So yeah. it's quite interesting to see. Actually, we never expected that to be the case. It's um. One of my friends is was saying that he gives. I'm not going to complete twat now because I've forgotten the name of the charity, which is like then I just sound like someone that's like, oh, this is an amazing charity, doing an amazing thing. But um, <laughs> it's that you basically buy um, Christmas Day for um, someone who doesn't have a home, and you buy them an entire day. You buy them. I think you buy them more than that. I think you buy them the, like Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and Boxing Day somewhere to stay clean clothes clean bed hot shower hot meals including their Christmas dinner and you buy them all of that and it's like fixed price and um, and he was like yeah you know it's, it's, it's actually really reasonable like it's like 30 pounds or something and he was like and I just find myself buying I did it for one person the first time then I did it for two three he was like I'm doing it for like four people this year he was like but what is so good about it is it's like see exactly what your money's getting in a way and it's mm. like you shouldn't take that but like it's the same thing with what you're doing so like I can absolutely see the impact I'm having so even in a selfish way as someone that's using cracking cider I can I can if I really want to go yeah I bought a homeless person a coat the other day so yeah. I'm a fantastic person you know <laughs> it's like it's great isn't it? we've kind of made the the whole idea and the whole experience more focused towards the person giving the money rather than like, you won't find a picture of a homeless person on any of our communications people already know what that looks like and people already have that empathy 
we just wanted to be able to say, oh, hey, look, you can come onto our nice site, and this is how you can help, and you can choose, and you can spend how much you want to spend, and this is what you're gonna, how you're going to impact. And it became more about them rather than the traditional charity, which is, look how awful these people's situations are. And, you know, that's, that's got merits, and they raise millions of pounds, and they do amazing work. But we thought, well, let's try a different approach in a time when actually there's a bit of charity fatigue going on. People don't quite trust where that money's being spent anymore. So, yeah, we just thought we'd try something different and take that risk, and it kind of worked. And more charities and stuff are popping up that are doing that kind of thing now, which is amazing. Yeah. Very amazing. Amazing isn't really good, just it, but, yeah. Um, all right, so purpose-driven creativity. What's your one-paragraph idea for saving the world? Big one to end on. Well, no offence, but I had one paragraph idea that could save the world I wouldn't be sat here chatting <laughs> <laughs> to you well, I'd be I think you're underestimating <laughs> how big a deal this show is but I would be I would be out there trying to make that idea um, I don't I don't, honestly don't have the answer I think the answer doesn't lay in one paragraph it lays, it lies in everybody coming up with their own one paragraph and the culmination of all these paragraphs coming together is the only thing that's really going to change anything. But I think business is where the answer lies. It's not necessarily in government or in policy. Uh, I think business is the things that are driving behaviour change in this world. Um, so I think it's just a case of using our money. The one bit of power that we have left is who we spend with. And using that to support the right sort of companies that are making positive changes in the world and it's just a bit by bit effort <laughs> unfortunately I wish I had one idea Scarlet for president <laughs> <laughs> um, no but I think that's a, there's something really interesting there is that in a time like you know charity fatigue that's definitely happening political fatigue I think a lot of people given everything that's happening in the UK people are just like you know what it doesn't matter who I vote for you know, it's all just shit, isn't it? Um, and I've definitely over. You know, that's just not. That's not just me being ridiculous. I've, I've heard that opinion from people in the last year or so. And you're right. That the reality is, we've got. Once you pay all your bills, and you buy your groceries and whatever else are essential items, you've got a limited amount of money left. And where and how and who you spend that with can change things. And actually, if there are companies where you know, actually part of their business model or at least part of their marketing model is trying to change things that need to change as well as thriving as a business and you're putting your money to those rather than a company that only cares about itself and things will change. Yeah, they have to. So exactly. I think whilst you metted the shit out of my question <laughs> and sort of dodged answering it, you kind of, kind of actually said something really, really cool. So, um, well, that's good to know. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. This has been brilliant. Oh, that's um, quite all right. I've had fun. Yeah, it's been great. So thank you. No worries. <laughs>